It's Thursday the 24th of October, 2019. And we're at the Houses of Parliament. The Runnymede Trust and the Race Beat, in cooperation with Dawn Butler MP, Shadow Women and Equality spokesperson for Labour, have convened a meeting. Right, so first of all, thank you everybody for coming. I'm Marcus Ryder. Marcus Ryder is the chief editor for China Global Television Network, based out of Beijing, but he's also a former head of current affairs at BBC Scotland and a veteran British broadcaster. He'll be chairing the panel. The panel is here to consider the treatment of BBC Breakfast News presenter Naga Manchetti, which has raised some serious questions about how journalists should approach reporting racism. Impartiality is a difficult line to toe, but the treatment of Naga Manchetti, who was found in breach of the BBC's editorial guidelines, only for the decision to be subsequently reversed, has raised serious questions about how journalists should approach reporting and commenting on racism and racists. It's also caused some to question whether the BBC complaints procedure is fit for purpose and what the meaning of impartiality is. Here's how Omar Khan, the director of the Runnymede Trust, put it to me. We were here to follow up a few weeks on from the BBC Naga Manchedi experience where she was uh, initially had a complaint upheld against her uh, for calling Donald Trump a racist, uh, which was then overturned, which raised questions, I think, both for how the BBC reports on racism, how it treats its ethnic minority staff, uh, but also uh, about its complaints process. The event has proved oversubscribed, so at the last minute it's moved from committee room 6 to committee room 9, where the microphones hang down, a bit like in the House of Commons chamber itself. So the sound's a bit variable, but hang with us. We're just going to let the panel play out, but before we do, to tell you who's on it, there's Akhil Ahmed media professor and former head of religion at the BBC and Channel 4, Kerry Thomas, editor and partner at Tortoise Media and former editor of BBC Panorama and Radio 4's Today programme, Maya Goodfellow, broadcaster, writer, commentator and author of Hostile Environment, How Immigrants Became Scapegoats, Yasmin Alibi-Brown, the award-winning newspaper columnist, and Mukti Jane Campion, executive producer and author of the 2005 publication Look Who's Talking, Cultural Diversity, Public Service Broadcasting and The National Conversation, published by Nuffield College, Oxford. And we're going to begin with Mukti talking about that report. And this report that I wrote all those years ago, all the recommendations that were in there then still apply. And the biggest one is we need a more diverse workforce in the media. And we really haven't cracked that. Why haven't we cracked that? I thought it was a matter of just producing the evidence and somehow everybody would fall into line. Well, yeah, that's not happening. And I really believe that we have to sort of keep trying to fight these battles. It's a psychological battle because it's not about... Uh, just individuals who have power saying, okay, we'll give a bit more money for another training scheme or whatever. It's actually saying we have a right to all be part of this national conversation. And there are some voices that are just not getting heard, whereas others are getting amplified more and more. So for me, the bigger issue to come out of this 
is what are we all doing as an industry to really tackle the way that racism is being allowed to grow uh, because we're all a bit wary of how to deal with it. And I think, you know, I, I'm a great fan of the BBC in lots of ways, the BBC editorial guidelines revised, and people think very hard about these things. But are they actually fit for purpose right now, given some of the things that are happening? So maybe <coughs> Kerry can talk about that as well. Okay. Same way to Kerry. Right, why is it important? I think um, for loads of reasons, but I think it's important because it's important because the BBC got it wrong before it got it right for the wrong reason. Um, because that leaves a sense of unfinished business about the whole thing. And I think, um, so when, fundamentally I think it's important because it was a moment when BBC's idea of impartiality bumped into questions of identity. And I think the BBC's definition of impartiality was exposed as being, as being too narrow. So impartiality, you know, you'll hear it said, the BBC regards it as vital. And I think, you know, my experience is that they're sincere about that. That it's, um, that it's, it's, a, it's a, they would say it's a core value. And although I would say that it's one you'd have to say you, you strive for knowing that you're going to get it wrong quite a lot of the time, that doesn't mean it's not important to them. Um, I think it is. Um, we'll all have noticed that you do, you do hear opinion on the BBC. So Laura Coonsberg is not just allowed, but she's expected to go on the Telegraph News every night and make a call. She, you know, she's expected to say Boris Johnson has had a bad day. Um, and the BBC would say that that's a judgment based on facts and evidence. And if push came to shove, they would say, Laura, have you got notebooks to, to prove facts and evidence that stand behind the judgment that you made. Um, I think because the BBC holds to that idea of facts and evidence very tightly, um, what was interesting in this case is when we saw Nagamanchetti's comments, which were based in identity and experience, um, the BBC, I think, finds it hard to accept that identity and experience are a valid basis for making a judgment about a story that's in the news. Um, and I, for me, what that points to is that while the public square has got a lot more complicated in the last many years, the BBC's understanding of what constitutes it and on what basis people can comment on it is, is not up to speed. So, so conceptually, the public square might have been some, a more binary thing for several decades ago. Right now, it's, you know, it's contested, it's complicated. I think we can all see that's true, and, and, and some of the some of the people who are there are there on the basis of their identity and their experience, as well as this this sort of slightly abstract idea of, of facts and evidence. So, so I think um, I think the BBC has to recognise that everybody's judgments are made on the basis of identity and experience. I think there's a there's a kind of idea somehow that some people's views come from a neutral place and other people's views come with baggage. And I think you have to get beyond that because the truth is, I, anybody else has worked there. Of course, you know, our views are formed and shaped by, by our, our identity and our experience. And, and I think it would help to, to acknowledge that. Um, I do think um, that this is ferociously difficult for the BBC because it sees it as potentially existential. And I think, you know, a lot of us might agree with that. But what I think the BBC will be very clear about where it can't end up 
it, it doesn't want to end up in a situation where um, it has sort of competing voices within a programme. So it doesn't want to end up in a position where you have a Muslim breakfast presenter who uh, is furious at Boris Johnson's comments about letterboxes. It doesn't want to end up with a Jewish breakfast presenter who's equally furious about something else. Um, but if it's going to avoid that kind of fracturing, if it's going to justify itself as a, as a place which reflects all of the opinions, or as many as it can of the opinions within this sort of public space, which is really what the definition of impartiality comes down to, then I think it just has to be a, a lot smarter than it's been about, um, about how it understands what's in that space and how it's properly represented within the BBC. Okay. Maya? Uh, yeah, okay, well thank you very much uh, to everyone for coming today and for having me. Um, I think there's two, there's two things I would probably touch upon. One is more specifically related to the case of Nagar Manchetti and the other I think is, um, is kind of exists within some of the reporting of what that fallout but also maybe how we might understand <coughs> racism operating in the media more generally. And I guess as a basic point, to me how it read, and I don't know the ins and outs of the BBC's procedures. I don't know what happened in, in that decision-making process any more than any of you did. So I'm really taking this from what I picked up from reporting and how this was discussed and how it read, how the, how the treatment of Nagar Manchetti, all this back and forth between whether the complaint had been upheld, why it had been upheld, the lack of clarity around communicating that, was everyone on the same page around this, was the other presenter also involved in the complaint, like, there's a lot going on there. It read as the BBC wanting to have diversity on screen but not wanting what that means in terms of people's lived experiences in the room. It read as like uh, wanting things, for things to look different and seem different but not to actually accept what that difference means in terms of decision-making processes, the, the different um, experiences people have and what that means for how you're reporting on things, how you're talking about certain issues. Because you're right, it, we all bring things with us. Uh, all of us, regardless of your race, you're bringing something with you because of that. And I think there's a lot of talk about people of colour without thinking also about what, what white people are also bringing into that in terms of race. And I think... I think that kind of leads to the second thing, that I, the reason why I think this is really, really important. And like a lot of my work is around, um, is around immigration. And I think when we're thinking about racism and immigration alongside one another, what this case showed, the reporting of it, and the understanding around what Nega Manchetti had said, shows just a fundamental misunderstanding of what racism is and how it can operate in Britain. It isn't just avert comments of people saying specific things. It is also embedded in some of the way we understand how our society operates. And so I was really interested to see the response to Dawn. There was a line that, that said, racism is not an opinion, is, is, is not a matter for debate. I mean, I've taken part in debates where that is just <laughs> quite evidently not the case. On, on, on broadcast, it, debates about whether Britain is still racist, debates about whether it is racist to be concerned about immigration or not, and it's not that you don't want to break that down and explain to people why certain things are or are not racist, but for me it's more about how the debate can be racialized. And so, for somewhere like the BBC, 
If you cast your eye back on some of the things that have come out of the BBC um, over the past 20 years, for instance, the BBC had a, a, a program of a series of programs called White Season that was about the white working class and uh, supposed anxiety around immigration. And although I don't think you don't, it's not that you don't explore that at all, and that you ignore that and you you assume that doesn't that isn't a problem. I think the way you explore that matters. And the starting point for me is too often who is legitimate, who is not, and whose views count and who do not. Even stuff like, I mean, this is kind of sort of related to race, but this is also just the broader point of like, when you see Vox Pops about Brexit, I really love for people, journalists, to go to like really wealthy places in the South and ask them about immigration and not just so-called working class communities in the North. Um, but the reason why I'm raising this and why I think it's important is because around 40 years ago, Stuart Hall made a documentary on the BBC it was about the way the BBC and other other um, outlets report on immigration, and I watched it for um, for the research for my book, and it was just almost the same. The, the The frames, it's not that nothing has changed. The groups of immigrants that are problematized change, but it is it was so similar now to how it was then, and so I think that tells us that there's a problem with what we're understanding as racism in the media, and that it takes a lot of work, a lot of change needs to happen, but to me the Nagamanchetti case read as people who also just don't understand what racism is, how it functions in all these very insidious ways and why that matters, and how they were actually reproducing very, very unhelpful frames with the kind of um, the kind of response to the thing that she had said. So I think it's, it's about those, two, for me it's about those two things, this idea of diversity but also this much broader question of how we frame, how issues are framed in the media and what is accepted as legitimate and what is not, and what is status quo and what is not. Unpicking that is incredibly difficult but I do think the more insidious ways it operates are the more important ones to kind of focus fire on at particular times because that's where, when we don't engage with that, you only ever deal with the, with the, um, with the more obvious stuff, which also matters, but it, it can eclipse what is also going on further, deeper down, I think, and allows people to get away with stuff that they shouldn't. Okay. I see we've been joined by Yasmin Alibar-Grand. She needs no introduction, award-winning columnist. I will not introduce her, apart from just saying that she's amazing. Um, why is Nagla <coughs> important? Um, I'm going to answer that question by responding to some of what, I'm sorry I was late, I was doing the Matthew Wright show, but, but I think I want to respond to some of what I heard, and I really want to thank you, Maya, for what you've said, because I think we have to stop fudging, we have to stop saying things are too complicated now, we have to stop saying we don't understand how race works and all of that. Everybody at the BBC understands exactly how it works. There are issues that are, you know, need they're never answered. In this whole religion of impartiality, which, like all religion, is a very flawed religion, nobody's explained how it is impartial to have Nigel Farage on Question Time 38 times, and not the counter voices for 38 times, or even let's say 10 times. Nobody's explained why you watch certain programs with excellent BBC journalists. I love the BBC. I do not want it to die. I know there are, there are political parties and politicians who are waiting to kill it off. So it's very difficult for me to be as angry as I am at the moment with this 
institution, but I am. Um, you listen to the Today program now, and you never, and as Maya said, the vox pops, the vo somebody needs to do research on how many voices of color defending our rights, pro-Brexit, pro-immigrant, are ever in equivalent numbers on the Today program, or PM, or I, I've stopped listening to the Today program because it is so weighted. And I think there are several reasons for that. I also don't buy this idea that people don't know what they're doing. They know exactly what they're doing. When Peter Horrocks was in charge of the BBC, there was an internal conference that I went to, and I was appalled, because he declared at that conference, and some people maybe internally were there, I don't know. Were you there? Uh, um, <laughs> where he said, the liberal hour is over. We are going to open this up to the far right. He said it. And I asked him if he even remembered the mission, that wreath, the wreathian mission. And he thought this was being very bold, and he thought this was being very brave, and he was tired and fed up of the old ways, and some of it is to do with that trendiness, and I'm so brave, you know, I bring Mr. Far. So I think there are lots of things happening here. And with the Naga thing, it seemed to me very clear, and again, I think Maya raised, raised it. What about her co-presenter? He asked her that question twice, right? White man, nice man, actually. I have nothing against him personally. Nothing against any of you personally. So why was she the one who was punished? And I actually had a very, very high-level presenter at the BBC, because I went in to do the paper reviews, who said to me, Naga was completely wrong. This is how I would have dealt with it. I said, how would you have dealt with it? I would have said, that's not a question I can answer. Excuse me? You're live on TV, your presenter asks you these questions, and you are supposed to say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to answer your question. And that was his, and he was very high up in the BBC. So I think the Naga thing is, to me, proof that Actually, the trend at the moment is, I don't care how black people feel. You look good on TV. They love, as you know, the, the, the presentable faces of people of color on TV. It shows. They can take pride in it. They can tell us about it. But the values, the judgments, the selections, the way race is discussed, like, how did race become ethnicized? The working classes have been mixed forever, actually from the 1590s. Yeah? The poor in this country were black and white and then were joined by Asians. How did it suddenly become that working classes now means white? Why is no one actually asking those questions? So I think there is almost a deliberate pleasing of a certain sector of society and damn the rest of us because it's, it's the, the new times, the new wave, we're in a new place. Um, and that is why I think we have black, Asian, white, all people who care about the BBC actually have to be much more upfront and say this is not acceptable. This is really, it's not only bad for us, but it's bad for you, BBC, because once you've lost us and our support, you're even more vulnerable than you have been. Now, I was also asked to talk about my industry, but you can ask me that later. Oh, well, we'll ask you that. Okay. Um, very briefly, just so everybody knows, we did ask um, Kevin Backhurst to 
how long Kevin Backhurst is the number two at Ofcom, effectively the number one now that Sharon is, is about to leave. Um, and he said that it was inappropriate for him to come and talk about this as Ofcom are currently investigating the, the BBC. Um, people should also be aware that we um, invited every single member of the executive committee um, to be on the panel. Um, I don't know if they even responded. I'm talking about money. No, they didn't respond. However, we do know that some of the people at the BBC were upset that they hadn't been invited because they said everybody at the executive committee has been invited, so we know they got the letters. Um, however, this might reflect, I don't know if people know that Ofcom got, um, published their annual report into the BBC today, and they... And one of the key points of the report is that there is a lack of transparency in the way that the BBC releases and explains its decisions on compliance with the broadcasting code. And so the fact that we wanted the committee to explain its decision and then decided not to even tell Runnymede that they're not turning up seems to reflect um, the very issue that Ofcom have highlighted with regards to its transparency. So I just wanted to say that we are inviting, we did invite people who we will be discussing and are discussing. Let them go and vote. Those aren't fire alarms. That's the division bell at the Houses of Parliament for MPs to go and vote. We'll hear that again before the end of the podcast. As somebody who was, has been in numerous galleries and has overseen numerous live programmes, if Nagar had... If you'd been in the gallery that day, mm-hmm. what would you have said to her after she had... Did, did she do it right? Would you have then talked to me and said, do this afterwards? What, what would you have said? I mean, I think that one of the interesting things about this, and one of the lessons of the BBC, which was like not the right lesson, is that um, these programmes where there is more conversation between presenters, are a more dangerous thing than the programs which are more tied down and control. So, you know, you walk into the Today program studio, it's like walking into a sort of um, tube carriage. If you started bantering, people would think you were, you know, something had gone badly wrong. So you don't have those, you don't have those kind of moments. Um, in this case, I think what one of the BBC's big mistakes here is to, it, people have said this, is to allow the blame to, to, to fall over your neck. Because the truth is, a lot of people would have been would have known in advance this was going to happen. So, so on, you know, on a, as you know, on a live program, you don't these these moments don't happen accidentally. So, so I, I would be as certain as I can be that the production team, Dan and Maggie, all of them know they've set aside sixty to ninety seconds to, 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 to talk about the Trump tweets in the way that they did. So, that being the case, that's a collective decision. Responsibility for for dealing with the flight has to fall collectively, and I think for for the BBC to allow it to fall on Nagger singularly, uh, although they could say that the way the complaints process worked, um, I can explain that if anybody is remotely interested, but it it had the effect of filtering out complaint against them because the complainant felt that had been dealt with. Um, Somebody should have said, This is still wrong. But actually, there is a, you know, we've done this together. This is a team. Any program is a team effort, and, and we either we deal with it as a team. So I think for me that would be the main lesson. It's, it's just a, it's just a, it's a catastrophic 
mistake um, to have allowed to become single without a single <coughs> single woman like that. Agra, you've said so that can, I, can I just ask a point information question? Is there an obligation on the BBC to follow every complaint? And if so, why did they ignore the one about um, uh, spiked recently, where they had 600 complaints? I do. I, 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 and I just want to know: Do you have to follow uh, follow up every single complaint? Every complaint would have to be dealt with in some. Okay, so, so there are various stages to it, but it would have to be dealt with okay. in some way. Yeah. Part of the problem is that the BBC has hived off its complaints, the initial triage of complaints, <coughs> to capital. Oh. Right. So your first complaint does not go to the BBC. Your first complaint goes well, to... Uh, it depends how you complain. That's true. <laughs> okay. No, no, no. It's really important. Oh, yeah. let's, let's, let's no, but it is really important. Yeah. It depends how you complain. Because if you complain, if you email or, or phone the BBC, then it goes to Capita. Yeah. yeah. It, and then it gets signed up. If you, as was my want, get every week loads of green ink type letters and, and, good, and good complaints as well, then I would deal with it. Yeah. And then and then take it. So it depends on who you complain to. If it's faceless, it goes by capita. If it's not, then it will be dealt with by people, and every single complaint will be dealt with. And is there any information collected now? Because we're living in a different world in terms of social media and all that. That there are people out there who are complaining all the time about people of colour being on the screen, whatever they say. Are they collecting that? There would be if there are vexatious complaints out there. The BBC would know that. Okay, yeah. thank you. I'm not, I'm not, I mean, George Entwistle, my old boss, when I first joined, used to say, I know, I know your CV way better than you do, because I'm always referring to it in my uh, responses to people who are complaining about you. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, Akil, in terms of, you've obviously seen lots and lots of programmes, what would you have said to Nagla in her ear after she had said that? Or maybe you would have said, well done. I don't know. What, what, what have you said? I think I would have closed it down a bit earlier. Um, so I don't know if it was spontaneous or not. I don't know. You're right. I think Kerry's right. There's always that little bit of, you know, they will leave in a space because it's so scripted because of VT running in, etc. and all those things. So there would have been a bit of that. But I don't know if I would have... You, you also, you've also got to read the room, haven't you? And looking at how uncomfortable she felt, I think I, if I'd have been in that situation and I have been in that situation, I probably would have closed it down halfway through. I definitely wouldn't have let Dan, and Jasmine's right, Dan is a lovely chap, I wouldn't have let Dan carry on again and again, and I would have stopped it. And if you, if you notice, I think Naga tries to stop it, and eventually just does stop it. I don't think somebody said anything to her, because if somebody was in speaking in the ear, I think it would have been to Dan to say, Dan, wrap this up. <coughs> Uh, so I, that's what it feels like as, a, as, an, as an analysis of it. So I would, have I would have stopped it halfway through and then we would have kind of like had a conversation afterwards about, hey, listen, you didn't feel comfortable, did you? And then, or did, you know, and then, and then see what we to do after that. Because I don't think it was one of the a situation where you normally do that, can somebody now please apologise? It, it wasn't that kind of thing to me. It was just she, the actual Naga was really uncomfortable. And that was a bigger issue for me. And just watching it, you know, if you watch it in real time. So that's what I, I would have come in halfway through and stopped it. But I don't think there was necessary any need for an apology. And I don't think it should have gone as far as it, it went later on. But you know, as we, as Kevin said, the the right, the right response was we got to the right response. If it, even though it was the wrong way we got to. I think I, I, just wrap up. I think the other thing that characterised it is the BBC had no idea on the way through how serious this was going to be. 
to the first of many senior members of the EC who knew nothing about this until they read it in the paper. There's a lot we can talk about about why that might be the case, but it, but it certainly there was a there was a poor judgment about the meaning and the importance of this um, of this particular case. And this gets back to who is in the room. You know, if you have people who could be so um, under informed and not really savvy about the response that this will create, that seems to be a symptom of you know, the wide problem, which is that we just don't have enough people with the right sort of editorial experience, the right sort of personal experience in these senior positions to be guiding these sort of judgments. Um, and it just becomes, you know, you're just waiting for the next disaster a lot of the time because they haven't actually tackled the root problem. Yeah, I'm actually quite surprised by Marcus on that because I, <coughs> like you, I've, I've I spent a lot of time working with some really good people who work in editorial complaints as well, and real, really good people. And the amount of times they've asked me for advice, and just and, well, formally and informally, it's been, it, 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 over the years, you know, they're, they're not horrible people, you know, and they're not also racist as well. I'm just, I mean, I don't know the life in the personal life, but from a work point of view, they are not racist. Uh, so, in actual fact, the, the system has, has not had them. Uh, something's gone wrong in the system because the individuals involved, I know them, I've worked with them, and, I've, and, I, and they've gone to bat for a lot of the things that I think have been really important as well. Yasmin, you said that you love the BBC, but you're in a position where you um, are angry with the I BBC. I am, extraordinary. What do you think the BBC needs to do to regain confidence, and do you think it's lost confidence amongst large swathes of um, the um, BME population. It's in danger of doing that because we have to look at the why. I think things have changed. And I think things, uh, 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 you know, I, I did do think that he's right, but there was a time when there was a movement in the right direction. And there are people in this room who worked very hard to push that. But like I said, the new context, the new atmosphere at the BBC, and in part, it does coincide with Brexit, but it come, it, it, it's at that point where they said, we're now going to be so brave and bold and uh, look after these tribes and not those tribes. And all kinds of decisions were made. Without talking to the public, what they needed to do was to have public meetings about some of the decisions they were making. They didn't do that. Now, I think, look, look where we are now. Samira Ahmed has taken a case out, right? This isn't just a one-off about Naga. There are people I know who are working there at the BBC, like an Asian people, who get in touch with me and tell me stories that are pretty extraordinary. And it's not just that they're not being seen, their talents are not being seen. It's not just that the people who don't see their talents aren't really racist, they're really busy, and anyway, how would it look, and all of that. They feel there is a new mood. And the brave thing to do is to look after one set of tribes and not the other. I'm trying to be as diplomatic as possible. But it is actually quite cool at the moment to be not too interested in race. It's quite cool. And that is the, a challenge that's really, really difficult because we can say previously, this is discrimination, the numbers, and so on. But when the culture has shifted so much, and I fear to the right because of the license fee and all, the arguments are different, 
they're not actually like the old arguments. They will, they will argue with you about what's wrong with that. Right? This is Britain. You're a minority. Why are you making so much noise? The majority, and a senior editor said to me, the majority of these, the people in this country are anti-immigrant. We have to represent them. Now, uh -uh. you don't have to represent only them. So I'm really saying we have to be more aware of the new culture at the BBC. For me, it's extraordinary that four to five of the top guys went to join, join the Tory party, for example. Walked out of the BBC straight into the Tory party. Nobody said anything about that. So I think it's a wider thing than just the racism or discrimination. It's a drift, a cultural drift, towards a kind of nationalistic BBC. And I, I'm thinking of how I will write about it, but there's a new book coming out very soon by Peter York. And I've looked at the transcript. I think that's, this is going to be a game changer. And I hope BBC reads it, because it's evidence-based. Entirely. Christmas is coming up. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, Maya, do you think there's a crisis of confidence that people have in the BBC? Should we really care because there's lots of other um, media outlets now? Um, should, do we need to change the BBC? If so, how? Or is this actually yesterday's event? Uh, I mean, I think. No, no, I think it still matters. One of the reasons why I think it still matters, one of the good examples, I think, is something that's happened in the last two days. Um, so the 39 people who died in that lorry, it, um, trying to make it to the UK. Um, if you look at the way that that has kind of been covered, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm in no way suggesting that BBC has not covered this in a sensitive way, or that certain outlets have not covered this in a, covered this in a way that should be covered. But I've been part of some of those discussions and I found it uh, I found it slightly disconcerting that there's been a, there's been this idea that if you talk about if you talk about the wider immigration debate that this is situated in you're politicizing this event, you're <coughs> politicizing the deaths of those people. And I think it's already politicized if you only focus on smuggling, which is what a lot of the is what the government line is, it's what a lot of the reporting has been has been focused on is smugglers criminal gangs and networks, and rightly so to some extent, right? It's not that that doesn't matter. But there is a, there's been a lack of willingness from some, in some quarters, to engage with the fact that smuggling exists because of, the, because of policy, right? because of bad policy, pushes people up beyond smugglers. And the reason I'm talking about this is because the way that big organisations like the BBC, where a lot of people still do, you know, people still do turn on the TV and watch BBC News or watch other, you know, there are other, also other uh, TV channels to, that they watch. Um, and I know because, you know, people will tweet at me and really hate everything I'm saying, but they're watching these outlets and they are, in, they're still engaging. People are still picking up through their social media some of the way that these things are reported. That doesn't mean that new media isn't also changing the way that's done, but they still set the tone. Like the BBC and other outlets like this can still set the tone for the debate and help to shape the debate. The, that is not where the only that is not the only place that the that the debate is shaped now. Granted, but there's a gravitas to an organisation like the BBC, and I think although there is a crisis of confidence, some people still think. I mean, I know a lot of people in my life look to the BBC as a more impartial source, right? Because it is publicly owned, 
and rightly so. And so when you are reproducing framing that is unhelpful and that actually props up a particular part of the debate, I think that that matters. And it's a really, really, I, like, I wouldn't dare to try and offer ways forward when I'm sat on a panel with people who have far more experience and knowledge than I do about the way the BBC operates and what should happen. But I think that one of the things to know, it's a really difficult line to tread, is that media and organisations like the BBC, they don't just represent people's views and reflect the country, they also shape how people understand things. And so I think to, to think of it as only ever responding, and, and I've heard that justification a lot, is we are reflecting what the country thinks and how, they, how people feel about a particular issue. And it's very difficult to it's very difficult to see which it's doing because you don't want to overemphasize the role in terms of shaping, and you don't want to suggest that to some extent media shouldn't represent people's music. To what extent you do that? And I think one of the things, one of the final things I guess I would say is that to me, it's whether well, the people who made this decision, the decision about Lennon and Chetty and the people who make decisions in music, it's not about whether they're racist. I don't like. I'm not. Whether, I'm not like. I don't, I don't. How can you ever? Unless I'm going to say you the overdoing thing, but. There's not a test um, to make sure, but it's more about whether they are understanding how race operates and what it is, and what it means for reporting. <coughs> that is what matters to me, is less about whether they are racist themselves, but really whether they have a good, a good grasp of what race is. And probably not because our school system doesn't allow for it, but that is to me is important. Being in the, in the debate as well as like, how well are we understanding what race is and how it functions? And that is going to shape our decision making for that really matters. That's whether it's Okay. I want to open up to the to the floor. Um, so just before I do, I just want to make give people just one little anecdote, which is a fun anecdote. Um, Twenty thirteen, um, Radu Manning, as he was then, issued a statement saying that he had changed and is now Chelsea Manning. Um, the BBC, if you look at the day that it happened, for a good few hours, we were reporting Chelsea Manning as he, because they didn't know how to report a transgender issue. The reason why they didn't know how to report the transgender issue is that in editorial policy, there was only, and it might have changed, there was only one openly LGBTQ person in editorial policy. She happened to be on holiday. <laughs> right? I just know this because I was working in editorial policy at that particular point. There were a few frantic phone calls, they got hold of her and she said, don't be so stupid, she's declared herself a woman, she's a woman. That's how people self-identify. And you will see that the BBC, as soon as they got that phone call, they were like, okay, fine, no problem. And they reported it accurately and they have continued to report on transgender issues, and then they actually went in and looked at it. But, and it wasn't, no one, I'm sure no one even noticed it, but for about two hours, they reported that Chelsea Manning, he has done this, he has done that. And it required somebody who knew the issues intimately. I didn't, I, the person doesn't need to be LGBTQ+, but because they were, they happened to know the issues. So I'm not saying you have to have somebody. But it was fascinating that they were, requiring people with different skill areas and different knowledge areas in order for that to happen. So I think it reflects what Yasmin was saying, other people have said that you want different people with different skills and different knowledge in the room when we're discussing these things. That doesn't mean that we need absolutely every single 
being represented at all times, but you need people with different knowledges. Okay, fine. I think it's really great that everybody's turned out, so I think it would be terrible if we just put it on amongst ourselves and didn't open it to the floor. So, if people have a question, Uh, so I would actually like to just say that we talked about sincerity of media outlets covering these issues. I would say sincerity comes second to getting views, getting web hits when it comes to covering these issues as the example of Katie Hopkins shows. So um, especially to Maya, Yasmin and Akil, would you say that minority communities are sacrificed for views, hits on the website or the other? Do you want, shall I yeah. I think I think yeah at the moment at the moment the shift is very much against us so um, like I said the trendy thing to do uh, you know the next uh, in line to um, Nigel Farage is going to be Julia Hartley Brewer she's really picking up the numbers for question time I used to do question time a lot um, I haven't been asked on and I was jokingly asking one of the bookers and he said you're the wrong mix girl Go. Wrong mix. You're a Remainer, you know, lefty, and you have these old-fashioned politics. So you're the wrong girl now. And that was honest. I'm the wrong girl. The right girl is Julia Hartley Brewer. So I think there's a whole shift, and the LBC point is well made. I don't know if Ofcom has looked at it because they also gave a job. Uh, uh, Nigel Farage as a program. On the whole, if you weigh up. The, the, the balance on LBC, it's not good, except for James O'Brien and Sheila Fogarty. Everybody is quite right-wing on that, but that's besides the point. But the, the other thing is to pick up the, this today's tragic story and what Maya said, right? This immediately talking about the traffickers. When those 58 people died in Dover, I was so appalled by exactly this. So with Corinne Redgrave and Vanessa Redgrave, and Colin Firth, we got together and had a vigil for 58 people outside the, in the garden of the Ministry of Defence. And only, and BBC would not send a single reporter, only Channel 4 sent a camera crew. Even back then, they didn't want, and our aim was simple, these were not numbers. They were human beings, they were sons, daughters, computer scientists, lovers, Interflora gave us free flowers. Everybody went, but the BBC wouldn't dare turn up. Now you explain to me why they wouldn't come. And I bet they wouldn't do it today. The pro-immigration story, or even the sympathetic immigration story, is almost banished from the BBC. And I find that quite shocking, actually. I would just also add to that. I mean, there is a problem. There is a problem for like big organisations of like at least the print media dying. <laughs> and there is an issue in terms of like how you get people, how you get views, how you do revenue stream. There is a, like real issue there with media. But I think I interviewed a journalist um, who works at a lot of different newspapers, and what she said the interesting thing about it is although there is this kind of clickbait thing, there is also a counter clickbait of people wanting to know more accurate like things about whatever a news story is, wanting to know particular facts. And there's also, I think something maybe some organisations are cottoning on to is that we also have changing demographics, right? The fastest growing part of the population is a kind of mixed race. And continuing to reproduce particular stories is maybe not going to be so, I mean, this is pretty like 
broad way of thinking about it, but it's maybe not going to be so lucrative in the long run. And so there is, as well as there being that clickbait, there is also a kind of counter that a lot of journalists are cutting on to in terms of people wanting there to be a response to the inflammatory stories. And that's why so, we created that. T- talking yeah. to about countering clickbait, I think that brings us Kerry and Tortoise. I don't even have a tortoise now, but in terms of um, racist or racially inflammatory words, but your point, I think, about how in the kind of dangerous environment that Yasmin talks about, how you deal with racialized language and, 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 and racialized opinion, I don't think, because in part of the makeup of its staff, the BBC has the, the sensitivity or the capability to to be confident in dealing with, with that territory. So it will resort to the, the hard line of the law, which is really not where the, where the action is. Why do they give you the job? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> they a job. A highly paid job. You're <laughs> <laughs> doing well until that last bit. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, want to include people I see um, Ade in the, in the corner there? Hi. Um, Hello. I, I just kind of think until the BBC addresses the lack of diversity uh, in its positions of power, in its decision-making um, positions, this is going to happen constantly. It's going to happen again and again. I'm surprised it hasn't happened sooner. You know, and it's not just about diversity in terms of um, minorities. It's also diversity of thought. You know, and I, I think there's too many people from a similar background, which makes the BBC cumbersome and, and it's not nimble and able to move with the way society works. And I mean, it's going to constantly be a problem where you're out of touch with society if you only have the same people out there. Okay. Any other questions? Um, uh, Simon was going to talk eventually. Simon? Before I talk, I'd like the man who's sitting next to me to talk. He had his hand up. Okay. And I want to introduce him because he's here as chairman of running it. <laughs> But today may be the actual 19th anniversary of the launch of the Cultural Diversity Network and the launch of the first comprehensive BBC Diversity Action Plan, the measures of which were some brutally abandoned and quickly forgotten. But when Clive Jones (coughs) set up CDN, he was surrounded, the majority of people who were involved were from ethnic minority groups. That's not the way CDN is now. Sorry for doing the introduction. This is Clive Jones. He's done so much. Okay. Um, Simple question to the three people on the panel who um, have edited BBC programs and headed BBC departments. I spent all my career in ITV. I ran two ITV companies and I was managing director of the ITV network. Tony says in his letter to Dawn, um, can I clarify, our presenters can and do call out racism for what it is. This has never been in question. The BBC is not impartial on racism. They don't need to be impartial on racism. The Act says do impartiality. Racism is disgusting. Racism is offensive. Racism is wrong. Therefore, it's not... If How was this complaint ever entertained? There was one complaint. When I ran compliance on ITV, 
One complaint, you would throw it away. How was this judgment made when due impartiality and the Director General is making it very clear that actually you don't have to be impartial on racism? How can you be impartial on racism? And then how was this decision overturned? It makes the BBC a laughingstock. More importantly, it brings this whole issue into a terrible area of public debate, which is wrong and unreasonable. How does a major broadcaster make such a big cocker? Having worked with lots of complaints and having worked in editorial policy, I can understand the road they went down, and I think I can understand how they reached there. So I'm going to try and briefly try and get there. All right? So what happened is that it shouldn't matter if it's one complaint. Right? I think that's erroneous. If somebody says something which is openly racist and terrible, right, and I complain and nobody else complains, they shouldn't just throw out the complaint just because I'm the only person who bothered to complain. So I think it's wrong when people are saying 600 people complained here. If 600 people complain, it's not the wisdom of the crowd. If 600 people complain and they're wrong, we throw it out. If one person complains and they're right, it should be upheld. So I'm not, people keep talking about the numbers. I'm against the numbers, right? With regards to how they got it wrong with regards to due impartiality, I think what happened is that it would have, I suspect, I, this bit I don't know, I suspect it went to Capita. Capita threw it out. It then, they then complained again, which you're allowed to do, right? What would have then happened is that the, the, it would have gone beyond Capita, and then it would have gone to somebody either in probably the production. What the production would have then done is written a letter saying, this is why we're not upholding the complaint, right? The person, if they're clever, would have said, ah, this is why you're not upholding the complaint. That gives them, not intentionally, but unintentionally, it gives them the way to sharpen their complaint. So they then take that, and then, then take that sharpened complaint, and then use that, right? And then the person who responded, who would have been a really stressed producer or possibly really stressed exec, we've all been there, right? Being like, oh my God, it would have then gone to the complaint, the ECU. The ECU would have said, well, in your letter to them answering that complaint, you said you didn't uphold it because of X, Y, and Z. You have to adhere to X, Y, and Z, right? And that actually binds the logic of them trying to reject the third complaint. That's why, right, and trust me, we've all seen it, that's why it's the third complaint that gets upheld, okay? I, no one has told me this is what happened, but having been in that process, I am so sure that's what happened, right? And then you ask, why is it the do, I, I sound like a spokesperson for the BBC, I, I've been there 24 years, it's right in my blood, so I apologize, right? So then you ask, why is it that we've got due impartiality? So what it is, is that there are, like any level of rights, like human rights, there are certain things which are conflicting. You've got the human right with regards to, I'm um, looking at my brother who would know this far better than me, um, but you have the human right with regards to um, shelter, you've got human rights with regards to freedom of speech, and they sometimes conflict, and so therefore you have to weigh different rights against each other. With editorial policy, you've got the idea that people should not know the presenters, news people's opinions on controversial matters. 
So that's there. What is also there is what you have quite rightly pointed out is about due impartiality, right, and not calling out racism, or calling out racism rather, right? What they would have done, what, what it requires is for people to then balance, and it's, a, it's about three different parts in editorial policy that um, cover this issue, is to look at the different parts and weigh them up against each other. Now, any reasonable person who would have weighed up those parts would have come out on the side of, I think, that NAGO is absolutely fine. What they, so what it is about, it's about an issue of waiting, right? Not waiting for the bus, waiting, obviously. Right? And so what they've done is they have overly waited, in my opinion, in the initial upholding of the complaint, they've overly waited the idea that the presenter's opinion, the newsreader's opinion, should not be known on controversial matters. Right? Which is why it was not the complaint against Dan was not upheld. I'm not, I'm not arguing this is correct. I'm just, I'm just trying to explain what I am 90% sure is the logic of what they went down, which is why the complaint against Dan wasn't upheld. Because if you go down the path that what they're actually saying is the problem is knowing what the presenter's opinion is, we don't know Dan's opinion. We do know Nagger's. That's why it was upheld, partially upheld. Because It says partially. We don't even know what the rest of the complaint was. But that's why it was upheld. That's why it wasn't upheld against Dan, and that's why it was fundamentally flawed. Right? But I think that was the logic. But Kerry, you might—you've seen even more complaints, I'm sure. Than I'll you. be very brief. It's clearly a totally brilliant system. We can all see that. But I think <laughs> there was—I think, truthfully, there was one key word, and the key word is furious. And I think, without that word, BBC probably wouldn't have upheld this complaint. But she said but furious. She said furious, uh, and because Naga said that, the BBC decided that was. Again, I'm, like Marcus, not trying to defend this, I'm just explaining as best I know. That, I think, was the thing that tipped it from uh, being rejected to upheld. Okay, but why wouldn't such an important judgment be referred to the Director General, the Editor-in-Chief? That's what would have happened without TV. Yeah, because they, they, the they didn't realise it was an important judgment. I don't think they realised it. They didn't realise <laughs> The letter here to John Butler seems to indicate it's an important issue. Well, and well, that that yeah, but it becomes yeah. one, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. So, so they're quite a senior level at the BBC don't realise this was an important issue. So they don't realise, so, so right, I, could, I could answer that, but the short answer is no, they didn't realise that, but we need to take more, more <laughs> questions. Right? But yeah, absolutely, they did not realise it was an important issue. Um, guys, yeah. hey, hey, all right, go ahead. Can I just ask then, why is senior executive on national television mm. to say there was only a complaint about one person. Yes. Okay. Well, clearly, we didn't know that point. So, what I would say about that is that, first of all, <laughs> right, first of all, the person who was able to extract that from him was Samira Ahmed, yeah. right? And extracting that was an absolute game changer and shows why whatever the outcome of her court case on Monday with regards to pay, her pay needs to be doubled, right? Because I don't think anybody would have been able to extract that. And if you actually watch that interview, she asked him three times to make sure that it's completely clarified. It was, it's a beautiful example of great interviewing, right? So one, the problem with that, with him saying that, right? And this is, for me, sorry I'm meant to be chair, but I didn't think I was going to be chairing, right? The problem with that, is that following the revelation in The Guardian that there was a 
complaint against Dan. Within 12 hours, the Director General had then overturned the decision. Right? That timing was not coincidental. Right? I mean, I don't know that, but come on, everybody knows that it was not coincidental. Therefore, what you have is either a few things, a few options. One, right, head of editorial policy lied. Okay? Two, head of editorial policy was not briefed properly. Right? Now, with either of those, if you're then going to overturn, as a director general, that decision, right, we, I think that something then needs to change. There needs to be an investigation. If it if it's, turns out that um, editorial policy lied, and I really don't think they did. I mean, I, I, work, I, I just can't believe that they would go in there and lie. I just don't believe. Seriously, I just don't believe they would. If, but if it turned out they lied, then there needs to be serious consequences. If it turns out that the process means that the full complaint procedure and f following up to it means that David Jordan and editorial complaints and the executive committee don't properly know what's going on, then that needs to be changed. Right? So something needs to happen. What I don't think is acceptable is to overturn the executive committee and then expect the status quo to continue. That, that's yeah. my, my opinion. All right, so I'm meant to be the chair. Sorry. Uh, my name is Adams. Um, should bodies that oversee complaints, obviously in this case, address their own woeful, inadequate levels of diversity in order to be more effective with the diversity of the population at large? Okay, who wants to answer that? Sorry, I, I didn't hear you. Editorial complaints is woefully undiverse. Should they address yeah. their own diversity? It's not just diversity in terms of background. I think diversity in terms of, of personality, in terms of perception, all sorts of things. It's still very, very samey. I don't know who's made that point. Um, one of the disappointing things one finds out in, in my industry, newspapers, as well as the broadcasting industries, we fight, as Adi said, you know, you fight to have these black nation people in there. And then you're really disappointed because the culture overwhelms them and they become really good people in terms of that culture. Nobody wants to be a troublemaker. It's too much trouble. He knows what I'm talking about. Um, and so it need, you need to have people who can take you know, that kind of stress. And most of us can't. So there's a big problem about who do you have in that circle you know, that will make trouble and has the survival skills, or who doesn't care, a like I don't care a damn anymore, right? Because I'm too old. But most people who are at the beginning, middle of their careers, can't take the risks I take. So it's a big one, and I think this is where Runnymede perhaps can become more proactive, and at least with the BBC, get them to get a much bigger, bolder circle to challenge some of their behaviours and thinking, but I don't know, you know, systematically how you do that. So many people just get tamed. Okay. I don't do blame them. I do not blame them. Do you know the makeup of the ECU? Like, what is the makeup in terms of diversity? Um, we know that it's, uh, I think, seven people, two women, and they refuse to say anything else. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, 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 they have been asked directly, and they haven't said anything else. Angela. 
Um, I've got to go, so I'm just going to make a very, very quick point following up on what Ade said, um, just about the makeup of stuff. I have, so I'm Angela Ferreira, I'm the Managing Director of Douglas Road Productions, and last week we had a programme go out which was called Race Through Comedy, and the reason why I mention it is because it was so clear during the making of the programme and when it was transmitted that a lot of the decisions all rest with one champion. And if that one champion isn't there, then nothing happens. In our particular um, example, it was all about on screen and the champions there were Lord Michael Grade and Humphrey Barclay and a couple of other people, Paul Jackson. Um, so behind the scenes, we all know the situation. But certainly on screen, they were very big champions of diversity. And every time they left a post, it all disappeared. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that is a really big problem that I think we've never tackled. Um, people just don't care about it or they don't care enough or whatever happens. So I think that unless that happens where we're not just relying always on one person to be in one job to help everyone out, we are doomed. And on that note, I'm going to channel for Goodbye. <laughs> Simon. Uh, Mr Chairman, uh, I, we've had a very useful and interesting discussion about a serious and unpleasant symptom. I wonder if I might just have a few moments to talk about the disease and the possible cure and introduce some uh, matters that are not in debate. Uh, today may be the anniversary of the CDN and the first, but it's also another important date because Ofcom has produced a report on the BBC on its news and current affairs and on its diversity. And unfortunately, it was published so late in the day, it's not been possible to read all of it. But I turn, I shall be writing to my MP about today's event. My MP is Dawn Butler. And Tony Hall said to her, he referred her to the Equality Information Report in the annual report, said, if you want a breakdown, look there. Well, what we know, what is incontrovertible, is if the BBC finds it has embarrassing data, it merges that data with another characteristic to make it less embarrassing. We've seen that with the BBC production arm, where the data this year, because it was clear the BBC production arm wouldn't reach 14% BAME for 40 years, what did they do? They, they merged the data with BBC Worldwide to get a better figure. When you looked at the BBC annual report and you wanted to know BAME employment in radio, you couldn't find it. They had merged radio with education, gave them 14%. When Ofcom brought out its report, BBC Radio was 9%. So you cannot trust the BBC because the BBC is devious and lies about the data. I've put that in rather strong terms. Ofcom today has transformed uh, from a supine poodle into a mealy-mouthed, toothless Rottweiler. It's growling. It's not doing any of the things that Sharon White talked about in 2016 about enforcement. It's not talking about ring-fenced funds, but it is starting to growl. Just a few of the growls before I tell you what the solution is. Okay, just it, a few, please. Okay, the BBC is... This is up from the News and Current Affairs report. The BBC has tended to draw programme makers from a limited pool of people which lacked ethnic and class diversity. 
The, the rise in the proportion of minority ethnic employees leaving the BBC in the last year from 16% to 20% is concerning. Well, that's a clear demonstration of what a toxic environment it is. If one in five BAME staff leave, you have a toxic environment. The one bit of data that the BBC has not revealed, which Ofcom revealed, which is if you look at the broadcasters, the only broadcaster to make no progress in BAME employment in the last year was the BBC, which was 13% last year, is 13% this year. It came behind, behind Channel 5, it came behind Channel 4, it came behind Sky. Each of them has at least increased by 1%. So what is the solution. The problem is lack of employment and progression of BAME people. I shall post with today's hashtag Marcus Ryder's words to the Lord's Communications Committee. Nobody spoke more eloquently on why you need to employ BAME people than Marcus Ryder in his evidence to the Lord's Communications Committee. So there is a solution which was suggested to the Lord's Communications Committee, we need to see their report. But that is contestable funding, because the BBC is not making progress. It's 19 years since the first diversity action plan. The BBC is making no progress in the last year on BAME employment. The government in introduced contestable funding for children's programmes, because it, there was a market failure in that area. In terms of BAME employment, there should be a criteria attached to contestable funding. And the natural point for this to come in is at the midterm license review. So my question is, what's the matter with that? Okay. Mukti, you oversee, or are part of a panel that oversees contestable funding for, for radio. Is there an issue, do you think, that that could be part of the solution? It's part of the solution. I think what we need is for... Does everybody understand what contestable funding is? Would you like to explain what contestable funding is? It's a pot of money where different production companies, in my case, uh, working radio, can apply their projects and compete on a level playing field. And that's the idea, is to try and get different groups of people involved in production. Um, radio, this particular fund, the Audio Content Fund, particularly targeting public service content on commercial radio stations and community radio stations. And in the first instance, it's £3 million we've got over three years. And what's really interesting is we're getting proposals, which I know for having pitched ideas and made programmes for BBC for four decades nearly, uh, we're getting ideas that would never get made by the BBC. And this is why you need different avenues different sorts of people to come in and find, you know, commissioning systems by their nature are very, very hard to be fair, um, but there are certain people that they, I think, um, make it harder for people to come with ideas. And I think particularly if you're, for example, uh, an independent production company, radio, television, whatever, uh, headed by ethnic minorities, but not that many, you're already seen in a different way. You're already seen as somebody who's serving a minority audience. And however much you win awards and you make programmes that get fantastic reviews and things, you're still seen as somehow second class. 
And the way about, you know, particularly the municipal fund that I'm now, you know, a panelist on, you can choose where the money goes, is a tiny, tiny drop in that ocean. But what we're trying to say is there should be different avenues, different people can find their way to getting that media content out. And this is just one model. Okay, we're going to be kicked out in a bit, and Race Beat needs to wind, wind up. But what I'd like to do is just take three questions. People have questions, and then people can answer. So, do people have questions? I'd like to take a few questions. Okay, we've got one question there. I want to take a range, but no, just one. That's even better. Okay, one. Okay, um, hi, my name is Afro Zaidi. Um, I wanted to ask the panel. Uh, okay, so I have a couple of questions. The first one, though, um, with the Samanjit uh, Desi, we all saw um, his speech in Parliament and how he demanded that Boris Johnson apologise for his comments on the club. Um, I wanted to ask the panel if they all agree that Boris Johnson should apologise for his comments on the club, it's simple yes or no. Um, the second part of my question is to ask um, uh, Yasmin on the panel if she will apologise for the language that she has used against the club in the past, no. or that she has described uh, wearing women. Um, the discourse that she's used in the guise of liberalism and the in language of you know, liberal Islam, West values, so on and so forth. Um, and uh, I, uh, I say this as from, I think the only visibly Muslim woman in the room, <coughs> and uh, someone who's um, in the minority anyway, as someone who writes for a very left-wing independent media outlet. Um, uh, I think it's important that if we are calling out racism, it's not just the racism that affects us, um, but all kinds. So I try in my own capacity to speak up against anti-Semitism, against anti-blackness. Um, and I think it's equally important that if we are doing this, that we aren't just speaking on the issues that affect us, um, but that we are addressing racism at large and addressing the impact um, of it on all marginalised groups. Okay. All right, um, those were put to all the panellists. Can people try and answer as briefly and as quickly as possible? Should Boris Johnson um, apologise for his um, comments on the NICAP? Uh, yeah, but I also think there's a problem with policy. Like, it goes beyond the language that they use, and it's the policies they obviously do. Okay, Kerry, should Boris Johnson... I'm not sure it matters what I think, but I think he should. <laughs> okay, fine. Um, I think that it's important that um, he is called out. I don't really have an opinion as to whether he apologises or not. I think what's important is that the electorate can actually see whether he is apologising or not apologising, and they should then make their opinion based on that. That's how I personally feel about it. I think he's so, so slippery that I don't think I believe in apology anyway, so I'm not even going to cast an opinion on that. <laughs> Um, he, he knew what he was saying in terms of, he knew who his, uh, dem the demographic he was appealing to and, um, you know, I mean, from a personal point of view, I think he, was a bit, he should apologise, he was silly, etc. But actually, you know what, if you're thinking about, if you're really playing the game in the room that we're in today, he, he, in, his, in his eyes and the people that he was appealing to, he, he did the right thing. Mm. And, that's the, and that's the problem. Um, he wrote that as a column. Yeah, I know, but he's writing no, it no, for no. the people I'm who are responsible. question to me. Yeah. Okay, yeah, if you want to you answer your question. That as I'm not going to apologise. I wrote a book about it. I do not agree with the veil. I have a right to do that. I live in a free society. I have never willingly or gratuitously upset or insulted anybody who wears a job. I have an opinion. And then I live in a free society. I don't live in Saudi Arabia. So, no, you're not going to get an apology from me. Um, um, 
But at the same time, he did it as a columnist, where the disappointing thing is that the worst statements were made during the Brexit debates. Some of the worst racism of the Leave campaign has come and gone and been absorbed into the arteries of this country. And that, to me, is a much worse thing. Muslims are part of it, but Muslims cannot be exceptional. The wider issue is how they use the concept of the other. And that, to me, is quite frightening. But I want, be, I want to take my time to ask Adi a very important question, because you said something which made me think. You said we must reflect society, yeah? that the BBC broadcasters, newspapers should reflect society, which is what we all believe. But what if, like now, society is changing and abandoning the kinds of things that we were celebrating in 2012? We couldn't be further away from the Olympics, Great Britain, could we? So then, is it the responsibility of these institutions to reflect this society or the ideal society? Yeah, but you're talking about who shouts the loudest. That's not necessarily who's representative of society. You know, just because certain people shout the loudest and make the most noise and feel that they can go on the radio and say stuff doesn't mean they represent the people that's out there. It's not the people that I see. Um, and that's what we've got to be careful of. Now, I think the BBC kind of almost become like a magpie. And whatever they see that's shining, that's what they look at. And as journalists, we're supposed to look underneath that. Okay. For the Thank you. We've, we've got five minutes. I want very briefly so, sorry if there are other questions. Very briefly, um, we were tasked by um, Dawn Butler MP for solutions that she can actually propose. So, if people have one or two, please read one or two solutions um, or recommendations for what the BBC should do, that would be great. And then we'll go to race. So, starting with Akil. One solution or two solutions, okay. briefly. Picking up on what Simon said, when I was the head of multicultural programming at Channel 4, Julian Bellamy and I set it all up so that it wouldn't be just me commissioning. I, to answer Angela's point about the champion, that the money would be spent, people would, across commissioning, would be given extra money to come to commission programs that were diverse, which, you know, myself and Julian would decide on because the whole point was to make everybody understand the benefits of diversity, and we decided to do it in that really honest way, which is everyone likes extra money. Yeah. And if you felt that was the case, you would get more money, more hours, more programs. It's amazing how many great ideas we got out of it. So it's a shame, actually, that that, that, that didn't continue before one reason. So that's point number, that's recommendation number one. You can, uh, contestable funding, I think, has to happen. Okay. And that's it, I'll go into that. Mukti. Oh, so many things, but a couple of questions I'd like to throw out. One is, back in the 90s, there were, in, within the BBC, there were several departments. There was the African Caribbean Programs Unit, there was the Asian uh, Programs Unit, there was the Disability Programs Unit. There was a lot of problems with the managerial, resource-wise, etc. But what they did do is create areas of expertise. So when something like the horrible uh, events like Stephen Lawrence's murder happened, Journalists weren't left just floundering. Like, there were people who could, like Pat Young, who could stand up and say, this is the question we should be asking. Why did this particular middle class, you know, why, why did it happen to Stephen? Why is this something different? And they were able to set a tone for a lot of the rest of the BBC. And I wonder, I don't know whether it's the right answer, but whether we actually need to think about um, 
diversity and, and race, almost like we think of environmental correspondence or uh, economics correspondence. So we actually accept that there are people who thought long and hard about representation, about the political backdrop to representation that can be turned to in moments okay. like this. Maybe All that's right. one part of the solution. Good. Kerry? Any suggestions? Uh, I'll finish where I started, which is to say I think that BBC needs to rethink and redraft its rules on impartiality to take account of the fact that the public square was just a completely different place now than it was when those, when those rules were written. And I would, I would just say that people have referred to off-air as well as on. In the end, I think off-air is at least as important as what's on-air. Probably more so. So the, so the, you know, we mustn't get distracted by the by you know, what's in front of the camera. Okay, Maya. Uh, yeah, I think that it is also about getting, which we talk about a lot, the game more people from diverse backgrounds with diversity of thought, and so that it doesn't, it's not a case where if you lose someone, you lose all the knowledge, and you lose that person in the room. But I also think finding a way to challenge some of the inherent biases in the framing of certain reporting. And reflecting on that by engaging with what things like race are in a more meaningful way that is not just a kind of responsive thing about racism and, and reacting to events, but maybe some kind of deeper reflection internally about how the BBC reproduces some ideas about race and how it reproduces that in a different way. Can I just make one point? Or it may be happening. In the appraisals for top management and editors, do they get judged on their understanding and implementation? Or, and, and does their increase, uh, annual increase depend on proven diversity, understanding and implementation? If not, that's what should happen. Okay, no, but that's a, talking about their appraisals is, it will take us far too long. All right, my recommendation is in 2008, um, the government realised that the previous governments had been massaging statistics far too much. They were truthful, but they had definitely been massaged. In 2008, they set up the Independent Statistics Authority, which was there to actually present statistics as honestly as possible and to challenge um, massage statistics when they were presented. And I think what has clearly come out um, in some of this debate and with the Ofcom report today, that there is a need for an independent body to present the diversity statistics, not just of the BBC, but of all the broadcasters and of um, the Creative Diversity Network. So uh, Independent Citizens Authority would definitely be my recommendation. Okay, thank you very much. We are just going to go to Race Beat, who was one of the co-organisers for the final win. Giving the closing remarks to the reporting racism panel was me, Kay Biswas. I'm a critic and co-chair of The Race Beat, a new journalism network for people of colour in the UK. We put on regular workshops and events, free and open to people of colour, where experienced and budding journalists alike can meet, learn skills and collaborate on stories. During the Race Beat sessions, time is always put aside for journalists to discuss race and their experiences of racism in the media. Here, I give a snapshot of responses from people of colour working in the industry. To find out more or submit your own experiences, email theracebeat 
at gmail.com. During our sessions, we often take some time out to ask journalists of colour working in the industry to discuss racism in the industry in the safe space. And what we've done is we've put a call out in the last few days for some responses because we all know that the Manchetti affair is a, a, a tiny sort of snapshot of systemic issues between race and the media. So I thought I would read out some anonymous comments from the wider media. So at a mass market tabloid, uh, a journalist who responded to us said that uh, a fellow colleague would make monkey noises when they came into the room. Uh, a woman of colour was paid less than uh, the white man who was doing the job before her. Uh, at a major supplement for a national newspaper, the editor told staff that one of our respondents was not to be left alone in the office in case anything was stolen. Um, there was an event from a senior journalist who, who really should know better from a strand that's been on a major broadcast for about 20 years, where she remarked it's harder for white middle class men to get a job in journalism than women of colour. Uh, a very senior columnist at a major liberal national newspaper had their first column spiked. Uh, it was written about a war that we are uh, currently undertaking in a, uh, a country um, a bit further away from our shores than expected. Um, the editor said to them, we have people who can write about said country. Can you add an ethnic sensibility to this? Uh, court reporting, uh, a journalist of colour went to the Crown Court to report from proceedings. Barristers came over to him and asked if they had looked after or defended him <coughs> in court. When he said no, he showed them the press card, and they mumbled some excuse and wandered off. Last minute copy changes from a white editor of a national liberal newspaper to a work of a person of colour uh, about BME commu communities was uh, altered to exonerate a friend of his caught up in a racism scandal. A major BBC programme that's been around for uh, several decades uh, someone was turned down, person of colour was turned down, due to lack of broadcasting experience. They subsequently hired four white presenters with no broadcasting experience. And a young intern at a national Sunday newspaper, the only person of colour at the news desk. Colleagues would run each story concerning crime by them. So, as you can see, this isn't necessarily just a problem of the BBC, this is a wider systemic uh, issue with the media. Uh, we've had people who've come to our events and submitted responses who want more support for those who want to expose human rights abuses in their home countries for which the UK's press and Middle Eastern and African bureaus remain a hostile environment. Uh, that's disproportionately women of colour who asked for that. And support for those reporting on institutional racism in the prison system and immigration <coughs> detention. Uh, when you're working hard on a story and you're subjected to daily dehumanisation of black people, it's difficult to talk to white colleagues in, in the media <coughs> who um, you know, may not experience the same thing as you do working day to day. So, finally, um, I think 
If we're talking about policy ask, if there are any uh, members of parliament or lords in the room, I think an independent body for complaints needs to be founded. Um, Ofcom lacks transparency, ipso and impress completely toothless, and I think people of colour working in the industry have lost complete faith in these organisations. And it has been put to us that a review, an independent review should take place, preferably headed by a lawyer of colour, if we have any in the room, which I know we do, on the, um, in a similar vein to something like the Cairncross uh, review. So there are steps that policymakers can take after this meeting, and I'm sure everyone from Runnymede, everyone on the panel, and certainly from the RaceBeak Network, are happy to feed into that. And thank you to the panellists for their thoughtful comments. Thank you very much. And Kimberly as well from Runnymede. Yes. <laughs>
Okay, thanks, bye.